Please join me in turning in your Bibles to John chapter 17. The Gospel of John, the 17th chapter. We again welcome you who are visiting with us. We're glad that the Lord brought you. We're thankful to have brethren here from Sister Church in Woodstock and others who are returning from previous visits. If you've not uh, noticed our sign out front, we do meet again on the Lord's Day evenings at 6 p.m. for worship and preaching, and we would encourage you, if you at all can do it, to join us then and continue to pursue the things of truth for your own heart and your own life. We're glad you're with us, and if you've not signed our guest book in the back, please do so before you leave so that we can have a, a record of your visit with us. Now, we're not going to read the entire chapter this week as we did last time, but we will read this, the first three verses in this high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ so as to set our thoughts to those things that we'll consider in this message. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 17, please follow as I read. These things spake Jesus. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he should give eternal life. And this is life eternal that they should know you, the only true God, and him whom you did send, even Jesus Christ. Again, please bow together with me as we seek the grace and the help of the Lord in preaching and in hearing his word. Our Father, surely, in this place, this morning, there is needed much grace from your large heart if we are to expound the word of your book rightly and if we are to hear it and obey it in a way that is acceptable to you. We have within ourselves, O Lord, much that is at enmity with you, we can confess with the apostle, wretched man that I am. We can say that in us, that is in our flesh, there dwells no good thing. We would not lie to ourselves this morning and pretend that there's no deep need and that there's no need for great help from heaven for us to receive your word. Lord, we are desperately in need. And with ourselves left to ourselves, there is no hope of any progress or any correction of our need. Hear our prayer. Look at us as you see us in our need. And deal with us at the level of the heart. O oh Lord, our hearts are made to grieve by how much idolatry remains, even among those who are yours. And our hearts are made to grieve and to long for those who are not yours and who still worship the gods of this world who are not true gods. Having heard our Lord's words that life eternal consists in knowing you, the only true God, 
We pray that we may this morning collectively be granted by your Spirit the ability and the sight to know you. Those of us who know you, that we may know you more. Those among us who do not know you, that you may deliver them from the darkness and translate them into the light of your dear Son that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. O Lord, look upon us in mercy, our mixture of motives, our lazy bodies, our hardest hearts difficult to hear, and come in power. Help this one who stands before your people, who in himself is worthless, in himself is unable, but who in your Son has been given this responsibility and through whom, through whom your Son has the ability to seek your face and help and to expect an answer from heaven. Deliver me from my own sins, my own weaknesses, that I may deliver your word to them faithfully and grant unto them that they may now not be distracted by the thoughts of this world, that they may not be able to turn aside from your piercing word, but may we all come close to your Son and come to know him and you through him by the help of your Spirit granted in grace, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now the last time we introduced this prayer of all prayers in the Scripture. It is the longest of the Lord's recorded prayers. It is, we may say, actually the Lord's prayer. The one that he taught us to pray, or the model prayer which he taught us to pray, is not so much his as it is ours. This one is not so much ours as it is his. The one he taught us to pray has elements in it that he cannot, need not pray. This one has much in it that we cannot and must not pray. This is among the most, if not the most, delectable and precious portions of all of the Word of God. If for no other reason than that it is in this passage that we are allowed by God to enter in, as it were, to the very holy of holies in heaven and to hear the most intimate expressions of the Son of God in the presence of his loving and beloved Father. We are allowed, as it were, to step into a place that otherwise no one would be privileged to enter and to hear things that are hidden from the eyes and the ears of the whole world. We are allowed to hear communion of the highest and deepest sort between God the Father and God the Son. We have entered onto holy ground and let us be careful how we approach this text of Scripture. Now, we are preaching on the address, the beginning of this passage, our Lord's address to his Father. And we're dealing with it in two parts. Last time we considered, as the Lord looked up into heaven and said, Father, that Christ bore and bears a unique relation to the Father. We saw that this unique relation is summarized in the concept of sonship. The Lord Jesus Christ 
bears a unique sonship to his father. And that sonship, we saw, arises out of three things. First, it arises from the miraculous formation of his human nature, as he was given a body in which and by which he may come into the world and deliver his people from their sins as the second Adam. Second, this sonship, this unique relationship to the Father, arises from the Lord's being constituted the Redeemer and the Lord of all men. He is sent into the world to be the Mediator, to rule over his creation unto the saving of those whom the Father gave him from all eternity. And third, we notice that this unique sonship arises from the relation that they had together as father and son from before the formation of the world. He is the only begotten of the Father, ever proceeding, ever begotten of the Father. He was this before he came into the world. He was not always a man, but he was always the Son of God, always the second person of the Holy Trinity. He was before Abraham was. He is before Abraham was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became what it was not before, flesh. That's the doctrine of the identity of the Son of God, and in that and those other two things, his unique sonship in relation to his father arises. But not only did we state that the Lord Jesus bore in, in the flesh in his humiliation and bears even now in glory a unique relation to the father, but also we stated and did not open up the fact that Christ carried and continues to carry a consuming affection for the Father. He not only bore and bears a unique relation to the Father, but he carried and carries a consuming affection for the Father. And it is at that point that this morning we turn our attention to this address of the High Priest of our Confession, Christ to his Father. When he cried, Father, the hour is come. Built into that expression of Father was a deep, committed, consuming affection for his Father. And I believe if we can study this affection that the Lord Jesus had and has for his Father, much we can glean and learn for our own lives. Notice with me in the first place. As to this affection which Christ has for his Father, and which he expressed in this tender word, Father, that he possessed a confident knowledge of his Father's peculiar love for him. He possessed a confident knowledge of his Father's peculiar or particular or special love for himself or for him. Now, the Lord, it says here, lifted up his eyes to heaven. 
You may remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that place of the winepress, that place where the power of God in his retribution against sin upon the shoulders of the sinner's substitute weighed down heavily upon Christ, whereas he cried, his soul was exceeding sorrowful, even unto death, and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the winepress of the wrath of God, which was beginning to manifest itself against us, our sin, in the person of him, our substitute, that he knelt and he bowed and he went down face down before God. But in this passage, it doesn't say that he prostrated himself and went to the earth. It says he lifted his eyes to heaven. Is there significance in that? I believe there is. This posture is not so much the posture of humiliation and crushing as it is the posture of confidence and achievement and triumph and promise and blessing and glory. He lifts his eyes to heaven, not as the Pharisee in the parable, who in arrogance and personal pride exalted himself, but as the one who had full confidence in his acceptability at the right hand of his Father, and who had full confidence that this prayer was going to be heard. The one who was able to say, Father, I know that you always hear me. The one who was able to make promises to us on the basis of his own intercession for us as our priest lifts his eyes to heaven. Now there's more to be said about this phrase and we don't have time today to delve deeply in it but at least it shows us that he recognized and recognizes and exemplified for us the fact that it is from heaven that we are to get what we need. It is not on this earth it is not from what surrounds us, but from what is above us. That's why those who refuse to recognize the absolute right of God over their lives have no comfort in lifting their eyes to that God and asking him to help. They don't recognize his authority to help. They therefore do not have the right to expect his help. They do not recognize his rule. Therefore, they cannot look to him as the one who alone is able to answer them in their distress and in their calamity. That's why you don't see among those who believe Jesus is not Lord or who is not necessarily Lord a very prayerful life. Those who from the heart do not see and think continually of his rights as Lord seldom appeal to him when they're in need. They look to their own resources. They look for the solutions of this earth, not the Lord Jesus. He lifted his eyes to heaven. In chapter 13, he served them. In chapter 14 through 16, he preached to them and taught them. In chapter 17, he prays for them. He serves by example. He teaches for their comfort. And then he commits it all to his Father in heaven in prayer. Shall we ever come into this place or to any other place of worship and presume that we're going to receive a blessing from Christ, that we're going to hear his word in such a way that it really will make the difference without our first asking God to make it so? How many of you make it a habit 
to come to this place at 10 or 15 minutes before 9 on the Lord's Day morning, having already earnestly cried to God that He would meet you when you get here, that He would help the teacher and the preacher, that He would visit you and meet your soul's need, lest you come and waste all the time in hearing words but unable to retain them. How many of you at 12 or 12.15 or 12.25, whatever your motive, leave this place with a prayer breathing, Oh Lord, seal these things to my heart. Let me not lose them. Let me not forget them. Grind them in. How many of you spend the Lord's Day afternoons, at least a portion of it, crying to God, praying in the things you've heard? Brethren, if you do not, that's the reason that next week you forget what you heard. That's the reason that by Tuesday morning you're depressed after being blessed by promises on Sunday. That's the reason that as early as Monday morning you've forgotten all the benefits of God's Word. You didn't commit it to prayer. It sounds simple, doesn't it? But without this posture of regular resorting to heaven, you're not going to receive benefits. Well, it was in this posture that the Lord addressed the Father. He lifted his eyes to heaven in confident assurance of his Father's love for him and said, Father. No tender word can be addressed in Father. And he looked to his Father. And he addressed his concerns to his Father from whence all his hopes come and where all his hopes rest. And he did it in the knowledge, confident knowledge, of his Father's peculiar love for him. Look at verse 23 of John 17. In the midst of this prayer, he says in verse 23, I in them... And thou in me, that they may be perfected unto one, that the world may know that you did send me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. He was well aware and confident that from all times past, his father loved him. What a precious, confident knowledge that is to have, that your father in heaven loves you. The Lord Jesus had that confidence. He saw it in verse 26. And I made known unto them thy name and will make it known that the love wherewith you loved me may be in them and I in them. Turn back to John chapter 10, verse 17. The Lord Jesus lived his entire life among us here with this confidence of his Father's love for him. In John 10, verse 17, speaking of himself as the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, he says, Therefore does the Father love me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. There's this everlasting love that the Father had for his Son, of which his Son is confident. There is this particular, as we, could we call it, reward love. This love by virtue of his readiness to obey and lay his life down. There is a special love 
that the Father has for the Lord Jesus, because only Jesus has been found worthy and willing to deliver the sinners from their sins. Only Jesus willing to drink this cup that the Father gives him. Only Christ ready to delight to do the will of the Father. And therefore, the Father, he says, loves me. Do you understand that confidence that Christ had with his Father? There is a relationship from eternity wherein the Father particularly loves Christ. And in a way that we cannot even describe historically or geographically or isolate into a form of preaching, the Father specifically, preciously, specially loves his Son because it is his Son that lays his life down for the sheep that he may take it again. I tell you, if we may just make this application, if the world had any idea how much the Father delights in and loves this person, his Son, for his dying obedience, they would not dare insult the Father by presuming that the Son is not to be reckoned with in religion. They would not demean Christ who alone is worthy to be praised as Savior, if they understood how the Father used it. They would not take his name upon their lips lightly, or to use a curse word. They would not glibly mention Jesus as though he were nothing. They would not develop theologies that deny the very claims of Scripture regarding his identity and his accomplishment, if they had any conception of the view his father takes toward him, they would tremble. As the scriptures say, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Why? Because the father kisses the son, delights in the son, loves the son. Do not speak of loving God and not love his son. Do not flatter God and worship God and remove yourself from his son. God will not take that. God hates that in direct proportion to how much he loves his son. Therefore does the father love me because I lay my life down that I may take it again. Then turn to chapter 3 of John's Gospel. A portion of the chapter that is not often opened up because of that powerful section in the beginning of the chapter. But in verse 35 of John 3, we are told, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now this very thing that we read throughout the Gospel of John, that into the hands of Jesus Christ God has committed all authority, all judgment, all rights, everything pertaining to godship and lordship and headship and kingship the Father has given to his Son throughout the gospel. We see it again here in this verse. He gives all things into the hands of his Son. Why? Why Jesus? Why to the Lord Jesus does the Father commit all things to him? Because he loves him. He loves him. He loves him. What parent would ever expect an intelligent world to believe that he loves his children and he withholds all good things from them? 
The Lord recognized that even we evil parents give good things to our children. Why? Because we have natural affection for them. We love them as our children. Our love may not be holy and high as God's love, but it's a love that expresses itself in giving good things to our children, and we delight to do so. All the more to see the wickedness of a generation of parents that don't even provide the basics for their children. They were without natural affection. That's the ultimate of perversity, where their children aren't clothed and aren't fed because of a lazy, drunken, drug addict father or mother. What a shame! But it's assumed in the Bible that that's way out of the ordinary. That's perverse. But the ordinary is that every decent parent, every rational parent, loves his children and gives good things to them. The Father has committed the glorious rights of lordship and mediatorship to his Son because he loves him. He loves him. He loves him. You measure it. You meditate upon what God has given to his Son, what he possesses now as Lord of heaven and earth, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he has all authority in heaven and earth. You measure that, and that's the measure of how his Father loves him. Now, I'm not suggesting doting over a child, indulging a child the way Joseph's father perhaps indulged him. I'm not suggesting that kind of sinful, false love but this kind of holy love by virtue of which the Father places into the hands of the Son all things. Now, do you understand what Jesus sees here? When he lifts his eyes to the Father, he's aware confidently, and it shows in the very prayer he's uttering later in the passage that we read that he knows his Father loves him. He comes to one who loves him, one because of that love who put into his hands the right to carry out this Work. Now turn back to John 17 and see it again. Verse 2. You can see the very essence of this principle in this text. Verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh. You see, Jesus could not say that without being thoughtful of the fact that it was the Father's love for him that made him give him all authority. That's what he meant. That's what is meant in John 3. The Father loves him and put all things into his hands. You gave me authority. That's why I call you Father with this affection that I feel. That's why I delight in your love for me. I'm aware that you have a peculiar love for me as I see this authority that you've given me over all flesh. And then he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. He's cognizant of a work that the Father has given him, of a people the Father has given him, of an authority that the Father has given him, and he cannot think of any of that without being confident of the Father's love for him. His high privileges make him aware of the Father's peculiar love. But let us add to that one thought as we consider this knowledge of his Father's peculiar love to him. Rather than to express this confidence in vain glory or arrogance, Rather than to let this confidence of the love of his Father show itself in strutting around, in uh, making airs, in uh, uh, pushing himself on people unwanted, the Lord takes rather the humble servant posture. Turn back to chapter 13. 
And I'll tell you why I'm, I'm including this. I want this generation to make an application. We desperately need in this place a confidence that God loves us. That's biblical self-esteem. We need that. You need, in order to pray with boldness, to know that the one to whom you address your prayer loves you. And to the degree that you believe that, and to the degree that you're believing it is true, you may have confidence before him. You come to God, who Romans 8 says, How shall he not freely with Christ give us all things? When you believe that, you notice that that is connected with the fact that no one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is he that condemns? It is God that justifies. Shall any, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Christ has died, raised again, makes intercession for us. Who can separate us from the love of God? You see that point? Some of your crippling prayers and crippled prayers grow out of your lack of confidence that God loves you. You can't think very well that he loved me and gave himself for me. So you hesitate to ask. You don't ask boldly. Every week it goes by and you forget the gospel again and you go right back to the same old patterns of praying feebly or guilting yourself right out of praying at all. And you come back to the Lord's day and the sermon preaches and the teacher teaches and it wells up and you say, oh, that's right, I'd forgotten it. And you're so thrilled you want to pray. You have a good Lord's day. Monday comes, you forget it. By Tuesday your devotionals are dry. By Wednesday, the world's pressing heavily. You've got problems you're scared to ask because you're thinking, I don't deserve to ask. God doesn't like me. Why would God listen to my prayers? Because he loves you. That's why. Now, I'm addressing you who are believers. It is vital that you know that, but it also is important to our generation and especially to this generation of professing Christians that that love and that confidence of that love does not produce in us the kind of strutting arrogance that starts claiming stuff that we want because God goes first class. As one book writes it, How to Live Like a King's Kid. And you start claiming your Cadillacs and you start claiming your prosperity and you start claiming your health because God loves you. That's not the result of the proper knowledge of God's love for you. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, now isn't the, the history of this? Where is he? He's standing here before the feast of the Passover, where the sacrificial lamb is going to be sacrificed as a symbol of God's passing over the sins of the people. He's well aware of what this means to him, and that he is our Passover. Jesus, knowing that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world under the Father, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And then in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. Now here's what he knew. He knew that the hour had come that he was going to leave the world and go be with his Father. And the reason he knew he was going to get to go be with his Father is because he knew his Father was going to reward his obedience and his sacrifice. He was confident of his father's love. He expected to pass out of the trouble of this world and out of the persecution and out of the sacrifice and suffering into the presence of his father where he would be crowned Lord of Lords and King of Kings in his mediatorial position. He knew all that. And in verse 3, knowing that the father had given everything to his hands, here's what he knows. That everything in the world is his, and everything in the heaven is his, and he's about to go sit on the throne. This humiliation is going to be passed. 
His glory is coming. He won't be a servant. He'll be the, he'll be the master. He won't be one in clothed in weakness. He'll be clothed in power. Knowing all this, what does he do? It says further that he came from God and was going to God. Verse 4. He rises from supper and says, I'm claiming what my rights are. No, sir. He rises from supper and says, because I'm in you and you're in me and you abide in me, from now on you can ask anything you want and you'll get it. No. Because I'm who I am and my father's who he is and he loves me and therefore he loves you. You folks can, if you want a Cadillac, you've got a Cadillac. God does whatever his kids say. God goes first class. No, sir. He rises from supper, lays aside his garments, takes a towel, girds himself, and cleans off their dirty feet. Now, that's the, that's the holy response to the confident knowledge that God loves you. Humbling, serving, empty. And until you've reached that, you haven't understood the love of God to you as you ought. So don't strut. I trust that there's not a lot of that strutting here. I would say more than likely in most of our cases in these circles, we have much more need to be confident that God loves us. But I would say if you give heed to much of the preaching uh, coming out from much of Christianity so-called today, you're going to need the other side. You're going to need to know that the proper response to that confidence is not saying, look at me, look at what I can do with my prayers. Christians can go first class. The only reason you're missing out on all these benefits is because you don't believe, is because you don't exercise faith, is because you don't claim it. Instead of that, you'll find those kinds of people that dwell in the confidence that God loves them will live like servants and suffer themselves and wait on others. Now, I just want you to see that. He possessed a confident knowledge of his father's peculiar love for him. But second... Not only did he possess a confident knowledge of his father's peculiar love for him, the Lord also spent his whole life in this world in an expression of his perfect love for the Father. His whole life was an expression of his perfect love for the Father. In chapter 15, He's thinking of love. He's cognizant in verse 9 of the Father's love for him. Even as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The Lord Jesus was one and is one who loves his Father. He's aware of his Father's commandments, and he keeps them, and therein abides, not only in the love his Father has for him, but in the love he has for his Father. Let's break that down. Think a minute about this fact of his love for his Father. And three things I want to say. First, no one knew the divine attributes as he knew them. No one was familiar and acquainted with the divine attributes as Christ was familiar with them 
and acquainted with them. Verse 25 of John 17. John 17:25. O righteous Father, the world knew you not, but I knew you, and these knew that you did them. O righteous Father, and in that adjective, he expresses his knowledge of who God is and what God is like. Something of the, of the holy attributes of God. We've been hearing the attributes of God for months and months and months. Many of us who thought perhaps we'd have a few weeks of that series have become astounded at how much can be done just in, a, in an abbreviated preaching series on the attributes of God. Many of us spend our lives not knowing God, longing to know God, and welcome hearing anything we can hear that will give us better insight on the person of God. I trust none of you have grown weary with the lengthy series. Brethren, we've hardly scratched the surface. If he started over and preached them again, many of us would hear things we thought we'd never heard. We need to know God. That's wherein we find eternal life, in the knowledge of God. And if you're weary of that, you're weary of your eternal life. You're weary of the blessing and gift that goes with it. The Lord knew the Father, and he calls him here, Righteous Father. I believe it's in verse 11 that he calls him, Holy Father. Yes, I come to thee, Holy Father. Righteous Father. He was acquainted with the divine attributes of his Father. He saw God, his Father, as he is, as holy. That means uniquely separate from all others, unable to be rivaled. God, holy, transcendent, to be feared, to be worshipped, to be obeyed, to be loved, holy. Holy, holy Lord God Almighty. What an experience we had this week in looking at a piece of computerware in which there were, there were these, these disks that had all this stuff on them, this information of quotes. There was one disk that was nothing but quotes. And all you had to do was type in a word or two and all the quotes, uh, famous quotes of history would be brought up that had those words in them. And so we put in, we decided to try that, and we put in the one by Ben Franklin, early to bed, early to rise, makes the men healthy, wealthy, and wise, from poor Richard's almanac. And we typed in early and rise. And up on the screen came various quotes from history with those two words in them. First one was the, uh, the uh, converse of Ben Franklin's quote, and then Ben Franklin's quote from poor Richard's almanac, and then there was another one. The first verse of him, number uh, 87. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning my soul shall rise to thee. Early and rise. And it pulled that verse up. What an opportunity for a bit of witness right there with the kids. Look, kids, and we get in front of the guy demonstrating this thing, able to quote to him, and they all brightened up and lighted up. Uh, what a blessing that is. So, see, the Lord is aware. He's got all this in his mind. His Father is holy, twice holy, holy to the end, to the perfect degree. None is like God. Holy Father. 
brightest father. And you notice if you look at verse 25, notice what it says. O righteous father, the world knew you not, but I knew you, and these knew that you sent me, and I made known unto them your name. And I will make it known that the love wherewith you loved me may be in them and I in them. What is this? What's the connection here between addressing his father as righteous father and all this other that goes with it? Well, I submit that it is righteousness in God that pleases him to glorify Jesus so that Jesus may teach the world who his father is, manifest his father to us, so that we may believe on him and be saved from our sins. If you go back to the book of Isaiah, you'll become quickly familiar, if you just read through it carefully, how often that the doctrine of salvation is connected with the doctrine of righteousness. God saves by exerting and establishing righteousness. It is righteous for God to save sinners. It is righteous for God to justify the unjust to justify the ungodly. God is being righteous in sending His Son into the world to become a substitute for sinners through whom an ungodly sinner who cannot, who has not, who will not obey God perfectly may be saved. It's righteous Father that does that. This whole chapter is about the Father who sent His Son so you could be saved, so you would not be punished for your sins. So you would go to glory with God forever. You, you, with all your ungodliness, with all your sin, with all your rebellion, and all your pride, and all your resistance to the searching light of God's Word and God's Spirit, you, who with all your efforts cannot stop being what you are, with all your reformations, you keep coming back to a rotten heart, with all of your desires, with all of your efforts, you frustrate yourself. You cannot measure up. You cannot get God to love you by doing good. You never make it. Your conscience attacks. Your conscience afflicts. You suffer under it. You're always in this battle, bouncing from this wall to this wall, trying to get yourself right. And the more you try, the further you bounce. And the wider this is the swing. And you become more and more unstable as you try to please God and please God. What happens? You finally one day say, I need somebody else to save me. I see no way here that I'm ever going to get right with God. I can't do it. My best days are failures. My best righteousnesses are unclean. My prayers are saturated with vanity, ignorance, selfishness. I can hardly open my mouth without saying something that I ought to take back. I'm a griper. I'm a complainer. I'm worldly. I'm shallow. Everything about me just keeps producing this filth. As Bunyan said, even when you go in to clean up the room and sweep the floor, what's the first thing that happens when you start sweeping? A cloud of dust. Your best efforts to get right just bring up all the crud and you see the more of it. And it frustrates you. Well, how can a righteous God, seeing that, seeing that you will not, even with your best efforts, cannot measure up, you will never measure up, how can he justify you as though you do measure up? 
and still be righteous. It's not fair. It's not righteous for God to justify you. How can He? It would be totally thoughtless of God to just lay aside His righteous requirements and all of a sudden say, You're just. You're just. You're just. You're just. Come in. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Come into the blessing of the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That would never be right because God requires obedience perfectly. You didn't. You can't. You won't. Won't. You're not going to get this settled. You're not going to walk out of here and find perfection. You're never going to be able to say, I finally found the plateau of sinlessness. Not going to, you may say it, but you shouldn't say it. You're going to fail. Your best is going to, how can God be just and justify that? There's only one way. It's sheer grace. Pure, mere grace. But then even then, if God just pronounces in grace that you're forgiven and justified, what about the fact of what you really are, actually? What you really do, actually? Is God blinding himself? Is justice really blind? Is he pretending it's not so? Is he changing the standard this once and calling it grace? No. No. He is fully satisfying his demands against you. You are suffering for your sins. You do pay to the nth degree. You do perfect yourself in righteousness. How? He puts a substitute in your place who fulfills perfectly all that holy righteous standard. And the Lord Jesus in your place as your mediator and priest and substitute obeys the Father fully and completely, absolutely satisfies all God's delight and pleasure and requirements for you and pays the penalty for your breaking of that law and satisfies and removes and, as we could call it, consumes to the last drop the wrath of God against you so that when God looks upon you, he is being perfectly righteous when he says, not guilty, satisfied. Accepted, justified, forgiven. That's why Jesus, in speaking of his coming into the world, of his glorifying his Father, of his bringing the name of his Father to his disciples, of his teaching them who God is, of his bringing the love of God that he shed with him before the foundation of the world into their hearts so that they are one and they love one another and they love God and they abide in his love and all those redemptive implications. That's why he can address that Father as righteous Father. He's familiar with the attributes of the righteousness of God in the very sending of him to say finished. That's what he's aware of. And what does he feel toward them? He adores them. Oh, righteous Father. He looks upon that attribute of righteousness and he loves it. With all that's in him, he is able to say, righteous Father. He's not simply saying it, hoping somewhere we might find some righteousness in God. From the full awareness of who his Father is, he adores him. He feels affection. He is consumed by it. Oh, righteous Father. He knew the divine attributes. No one knew them as he did. In John 5.20 he says, All things that the Father does, he shows to the Son. All things that are thine are mine, he said. 
Let me tell you something about true friendship. One of the chief and central marks of true friendship is transparency. If you truly are my friend, you're not going to make me live around you as one who's constantly trying to unravel the riddle of your secretive life. Well, you hide all sorts of things about yourself and make me have to put the puzzles together all the time. And you become an exasperation to me because I don't know if you trust me or not. You never open up anything to me. You know why that's one of the chief attributes of true friendship? Transparency? Because the Lord teaches us that. He says to the disciples, Henceforth I call you not servant. The servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But I now and I call you friends. You know what I'm doing. The father shows the son all that he's doing. And he'll show the son greater things than these, he says in John 5. That's a mark of intimate, loving companionship and affection and friendship. The son saw the father, knew the father, was deeply, intimately acquainted with all that the father is and all that the father does. And by that, it shows us that he loves all that he knows of the father when he continues to be content and happy in that relationship. Now, his love in the first place for the Father is expressed or seen in the fact that he truly knows all there is to know of the Father. You don't love somebody truly in ignorance. Young people, that is why that what you feel at 17 cannot be maturely described as the kind of love that those of us that are 40 or 50 know about. That's why when you come to Daddy and Mommy and you've met Mr. or Miss Wright, they don't look as overwhelmed about it as you feel. That's the simple reason. They know what you cannot know at this stage in your life. This is the most you ever felt. But it's not the most they've ever felt. You've never seen anything like this. Oh, Dad, she's the one. He's seen more than that. He knows this can pass. For him, it's past. He's been there, and he's learned that the real kind of love that sticks and makes a marriage work and function and grow is not that kind that's like more like cotton candy with various colors and sweet tastes, but it lasts hardly as long as you get it in your mouth. It's not the kind that makes you think you cannot live without that person. Brethren, that is not love. Love is not being unable to live without somebody. Why do you want to get married, I ask them. They say, we just can't live apart. That's the first sign that I'm not ready to marry them. You have got to be able to get to a place that if God so pleased, you can and will live apart before I can call it Christian love. In other words, it's not some ignorant feeling. It is rooted in a good, thorough, working, growing knowledge of the person you love. You love them not only in blindness, but you do love the lovely attributes you see growing in them. That's not wrong. We talk about unconditional love. That's true. But there's an element of love that's rooted in what you know. That's why I love my wife more today than I did when I felt I couldn't live without her. Because I've come to know her better. And I admire her more. And I delight in what she is. And all that she does to make my life what it is. I love that woman. But I couldn't have said that that way. I thought I said it. I, I'm in it. At the level I'm in it. But folks, they weren't the same as it is today. 
And it's, it's, it expresses itself in many different ways than it used to. It's not nearly as often now that we go gushing down the lane together. It's much more frequent that we speak in terms of mutual respect and mutual delight and a sense of working together in a harness of responsibility under God. And there's a good feeling there. And that's why a lot of marriages just can't last. Because once that cotton candy dissolves, they assume that the love is dissolved. Well, I'm saying that because to love the Father, Jesus had to know him. He didn't love something he didn't know. He, was, he knew the divine attributes intimately, and he loved him. But it's not only seen in that way, but in the second place. His love for the Father is seen in that none knew the divine requirements as he did. Not only did he know the divine attributes, he knew the divine requirements. What do I mean by that? He knew what it was going to cost to save us. He knew that because of what righteousness is and what righteousness requires, that for him to believe in and accept those righteous requirements in the act of saying, the hour has come, he knew that that involved his own total sacrifice of himself in order to fulfill and adorn those righteous requirements. You see, he cannot isolate the righteous requirements of the Father for us away from his own responsibilities in fulfilling them and satisfying them. From all eternity, the Lord Jesus could never think of righteousness apart from what it was going to cost him to secure it in sinners. And you tell me that his going through with this, his leaving his pre-existent right and throne and glory in heaven with the Father and that intimate, unmitigated, unrestrained love that only the minds of God himself to comprehend. And coming here, not just to a created world, but to one who did not want him here. One he made. He came to his own and his own received him not. You tell me that he did that apart from a felt intimate affection for his father, rooted in his knowledge of his father's attributes, and requirements for us. You tell me he did it with some sort of detached. Oh, well, that's what righteousness requires. Somebody's got to do it. I'll do it. You tell me he did that, and I'll tell you your Bible is not my Bible. He came with his soul full of this. Oh, righteous Father. I love your requirements. And that leads quickly to the third aspect. There was none ready to satisfy those requirements but Jesus. Not only did he know the divine attributes and the divine requirements, there was none ready to, to, to fulfill them but Jesus. I didn't say like Jesus, I said but Jesus. Who's worthy to open the book? I couldn't find but one. The Lamb. It's not as though the Lord was panicking, running through heaven, hoping to find somebody. This was laid down in plan in history because there could be no other. The Son of God. What does the scripture say of him? I delight to do thy will, O God. 
The things I know that are righteous, I love. The things about you that I know are your righteous requirements, I love. And I delight to do the things that will make those righteous requirements come to pass in fullness in the life of these sinners. I love those things. I love doing what it takes to bring them about. You see that? This is what we mean by Father. The affections rooted in his knowledge of the divine attributes and the divine requirements and showing themselves in his utter readiness, delighting to fulfill them. You see, the Lord Jesus said in John 8, I always do the things which please my Father. And here in the center of his consciousness, he's saying, Father, the hour is come. Glorify now thy Son in this hour, that in this hour of his being glorified, he may glorify thee. I'm ready. I'm glad. I do not shrink back. I delight in this hour. It's, how, it's a triumphant prayer. He's not saying, Father, it's, it's, the hour is getting closer. What do we do? Is there not another? That's not the spirit of this high priestly prayer. The hour has come. I've finished the work. Those you've given me, I've lost none. Sanctify them. Glorify me and glorify yourself and make them one. And Father, I will that they may be with me where I am. That we all may be one together. And that the love wherewith you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Oh, that he delights to fulfill this will of God. Now, I'm not saying that his delight to do the will of God does not translate in all the, action, all the requirements of the moral law. It does. But it culminates in this great coming with a body. That's the text that's quoted in Hebrews. I delight to do thy will, O God, a body thou hast prepared me. That sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. His delight is the will of God that cost him his glory for a time and his death for you. It's not just his affections for you. Oh, he loves you. But that's not the, the root of this thing. We've got to see this, brethren. It is not that big shot me deserves Jesus to love me, and Jesus loves me, and so he couldn't help himself. He had to die for me. It's rooted in his love for the Father. The Father's will. His delight to do the Father's will. I'm going to quote from Thornwell. We've read this portions of this in the past as we considered the priesthood of Christ. And I think it's so sublime that it's worthy of reading again. I love to read it over and over again. Surely quoting it two or three times over a ten-year period will not be wearisome to you. This is the high priesthood of our Lord expressed by Thornwell. He says, The position of Jesus is sublime when standing before the altar. He confesses the guilt of his brethren. That's us. He adorns the justice. He adores the justice which dooms them to woe. He adores the justice which dooms them to woe. And almost exacts from God as the condition of his own law that justice should not slacken nor abate. 
In other words, I wouldn't bring one thing away from the justice of God that exacts the punishment that I'm about to, about to endure for, for your people. I love that justice. That prayer of confession, that assumption of guilt, that clear acknowledgement of what truth and righteousness demand make us feel that God must strike, that the edict must go forth. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Still sublimer is his position when with profound adoration of the divine character, by his own proper act, his own spontaneous movement, he lays his life upon the altar, virtually saying, take it. It ought to be taken. Let the fire of justice consume it. Better, ten thousand times better that this should be than that the throne of the eternal should be tarnished by an effeminate pity. We feel that death is not so much a penalty inflicted as an offering accepted. We feel that God is glorious, that the law is glorious in the whole transaction because Christ glorifies them. He lays down his life of himself. It is his own choice to die rather than that man should perish or the divine government be insulted with impunity. And although in accepting the offering, justice inflicted upon him the full penalty of the law, although the fire which consumed the victim was the curse in its whole extent, yet as it was an act of worship to provide it, and especially as that victim was himself, every groan and pain, every exclamation of agony, amazement and horror, was homage to God which in itself considered, the priest felt it glorious to render. And if Jesus, in all the extremity of his passion, proclaimed to the universe what from the nature of priesthood he must have proclaimed, that the whole transaction was a ground on which God was adored by him, and ought to be adored by all, that his father was never dearer, never more truly God in his sight than when he accepted the sacrifice of himself. This is a perfect vindication from every illiberal suspicion. There is something to our minds inexpressibly sublime when we can contemplate the scheme of redemption as accomplished by an act of worship. When we look upon Jesus, Jesus not as a passive recipient of woes, the unresisting victim of law, but as a minister of religion, conducting its services in the presence of angels and men, upon an emergency which seemed to cover the earth with darkness, our world becomes the outer court of the sanctuary, where a sacrifice is to be offered in the which the priest and the victim are alike the wonder of the universe, in which the worship which is rendered leaves it doubtful whether the deity is more glorious than his justice or his grace. In this aspect, the satisfaction of Jesus is not merely the ground upon which others are at liberty to approach and adorn the divine perfections. It is itself a prayer uttered by the lips of one whose deeds were words, a hymn of praise chanted by him whose songs were the inspiration of holiness and truth. Every proud imagination is rebuked. Every insinuation against the character of God is felt to be ashamed to us. Every disposition to cavil or condemn is consigned to infamy when we remember 
that the whole work of Jesus was a solemn service of religion, as well that by, he, by which he descended into the grave, as that by which he passed through the heavens into the holiest of all. He was a priest in his death, a priest in his resurrection, a priest in his ascension. He worshipped God in laying his life upon the altar. He worshipped God in taking it again. And it was an act of worship by which he entered with his blood into the very presence of the highest to intercede for the saints. It was religion in Jesus to die, to rise, to reign, as it is religion in us to believe in these great events of his history. You see what it says? It makes the Savior adore the Father in his death. It makes that very death an offering of praise. Redemption itself a mighty prayer. And it throws the sanctities and solemnities of worship around all the stages in the development of the economy of grace. What we're simply saying is that everything on the heart and mind of the Lord Jesus when he uttered this high priestly prayer for his people was saturated with his knowledge of the Father's peculiar love for him his perfect love for the Father, which is rooted in his knowledge of all the divine attributes, his knowledge of the divine requirements, and his readiness and his delight to do the will of his Father in accomplishing the purpose. You want to define love? You must define it if you define it accurately under the terms of righteous obedience, of delighted, delighted obedience, of perfect obedience, of consistent obedience, of mature, intelligent obedience to revealed laws and the will of God. You cannot define it as primarily of emotionally. Primarily, you cannot define it from some sort of mystical feeling. You must start with knowledge and with delight to love that knowledge and fulfill its requirements. That's what the Lord Jesus is doing. When he says, Father, he's thinking of one who sent him to die. And he loves him. He doesn't just love him in spite of it. He loves him because of it. He loves him because the Father is what he is and would do this to save sinners. How he adores his Father in this act of priestly intercession. Well, we could say much more and no doubt will as the days go on, but let me pull this to a conclusion by some pointed application. I want every mind and heart in this place to listen to me. I want you to see the perfect, delighted, vigorous, resolute, principled, thorough obedience of Jesus to all his Father's will and commandments. All of them. I want you to see that. And then I want you to see two other things after you've thought of that. I want you to first of all take the greatest comfort and joy from the fact that as our substitute, he has fulfilled all the requirements of our creator and judge for us. That which we could never do, perfect, happy conformity with all of God's law, Christ has done it. Your obedience has been accepted by God in another one. Faith in Jesus justifies. Look away from yourself and look to Christ and drink in the joy and the fullness of confidence that comes from his free giving of himself 
take the message of the gospel in which you're taught that he satisfied all the divine requirements and placated all the divine wrath against you and run to him, get away from your sin, and rest in it. Worship him. But the second thing I want you to glean from your notice of his perfect, resolute, delighted obedience to all his Father's will is that the great purpose of the Father in sending his Son was to make us like his Son. Do you remember it? That we should be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the reason he predestinated us. Not that we should arrive with a ticket in heaven no matter how we've been conducting ourselves. Not that we may have an eternal blessed fly-fishing time no matter what our character and disposition to God is. Not that we may one day get to eat all the chocolate candy we want without getting fat. That is not the goal of God. Not that we may have people loving us, have a successful job and be Mr. Big Shot. That's not why he sent his son. He sent his son to conform us to his son's moral image. Is that your settled aim in your life? This morning, right now, can you confidently say, Pastor, if I know my heart, I am completely, resolutely committed to being like Jesus. That's all I want. Can you say that? Are you living your life in order to achieve that goal? Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be always doing that which pleases the Father? Could you prove that by the way you're living? Do you love the glory of God rather than the glory of man? Can you prove that by the way you're living? You want God to be pleased and praise you, or do you want somebody else to be pleased and praise you? Who is it you're serving? Whose affection, whose acceptance are you driving for? If you're a Christian, you only have one object of your of affection. It's the Lord. You only want his approval, and all the rest can fall by the way. That's all you need. Are you prepared to forsake everything to follow Christ? Right now. Not after you've thought about it. Right now. The Lord Jesus seldom tarries along the side of the sea when he calls Peter and John to follow him. He's on the move. You drop the nets and go, now you don't go. Two options. That's all. Now is the accepted time. No! You say, well, I'm a Christian already. Prove it. And you got it settled in your heart that you're living your life to please God and to be like His Son. Does everything else revolve around that? Is there something in your voice, in your mind, constantly speaking, saying, this isn't like Christ, this isn't right, this isn't in conformity with your profession as a Christian? Are you living in, around that center reference point of the purpose of God to save you, making you like his son? What do you love more or rather than God? What do you hope will never be asked of you by the Lord because you're so tied to it you're scared you can't make it without it. Now you see what I'm doing? I'm not saying 
What could you imagine perhaps if God gave grace someday you might be able to give up if it, but you hope he never asked. I'm asking from your heart, does it really matter or do you totally not care as long as the Lord wants it, it's all there. Is, is, is there anything in your life you have not brought out and laid on the table before Christ? It's yours. Is there anything? If there is, the commandment of the gospel to you is repent or perish. Leave it. Lay it on the table. No reservations. Forsaking all others to follow Christ on his terms, whatever the cost. That's the Christian life. There's no other way to be a Christian. You will not get by because you are a member of this church. You will not get by because in a few areas you can point to some efforts of obedience. You will not get by if in a lot of areas you can point to some good marks. Unless in the heart it's all laid on the table and you and God know it and it's clear in your heart that Jesus has it all and there's nothing else you want, you're not saved. You have not turned from your idols to serve the true and living God. What is it that you plan to do with your life or that you hope to accomplish or pursue in your life that you are not certain is God's will? I mean certain. You're heading for something, you've got a dream, you've got a plan, but you have not yet settled it with God. You're scared to ask. Because you're afraid he might say you can't and then you are breaking his law. I tell you, if that's your disposition, you're already breaking his law. Because you do not love him with a whole heart. Don't you see that? Some of you think that if you can skip a sermon and don't hear what we said, you're not guilty if you break it. Or if you could just get distracted enough that you could excuse your conscience. Then if you didn't hear, who can make you responsible? Jehovah makes you responsible. You don't need our sermons, my friend. There's not a soul in this room that needs my sermon to know what God requires of you. What do you believe you need to make you happy? If you've got it in your head that you need anything other than or more than the Lord Jesus himself, you are strongly in error. And you're in a dangerous place. Can you say, this morning, I am content with all that the Lord has been pleased to give to me. That's a part of what it means to have affection for God and to be delighted to do God's will. Doing God's will is rooted in being contented with what God has already revealed to be his will. Your income, be content with your wages, the Bible says, or you don't even qualify to be baptized. Your house, your car, your, chi your kids, your wife, your husband, your singleness, your job, your boss, your neighborhood. What do, you need you, what do you need to make you happy? Can you say, I am content with everything the Lord has been pleased to give me? Can you say, I am committed to do all the Lord has commanded me?
Can you say it right now? Can you? Is there a commandment? It's knowing it's your conscience, and you you don't even like to think about it. You, you you're hoping that we get to the next point real quick. You need me to explain what I'm driving at? If there's a commandment you hope that isn't mentioned in this sermon, if there's any commandment that's bothering you, and I know it's bothering your conscience, I know the Spirit of God is faithful. I know you know. I didn't. I don't have to read them out to you. Even what your mind went right to it. Do you not like it? Do you not delight in it? Are you not committed committed to obeying that commandment by God's grace? If that's your case, you're not a Christian. I didn't say if you're not perfectly obeying it. I said if you're not committed to obeying it. If you don't love that commandment. If you're not showing evidence that you are striving to get to the place where you perfectly obey it, you're not a Christian. Whatever else you claim, whatever you've believed, whatever you've tried, it's not saving religion. Are you able to say right now, I am confident and at peace with everything the Lord is going to do for me and to me and with me? Am I content with all he has done? Am I committed to do everything he says for me to do? And am I confident in everything he's going to do to me, for me, and with me? Can you say that? Is your future in God's hands, and is that enough for you? Are you hoping you can help him out and manipulate things so you can get the things you know without which you won't be happy? Don't you fight providence because you've got a little agenda. When God shuts you up to certain kinds of options, don't you say, I'm sorry, that's not an open because I've got my plans. Don't you do that. God will take it all away from you. You'll lose your plans and his. I watch people do this all the time. It grieves my heart to watch them say, Lord, I want to do, I want to go, I want to do business with God. I want to go all the way with Jesus. There's one thing over here, of course, that you know that has to come along with me. I'm so scared that what you're going to do with my future, you're going to make me say no to these fish, to this bride, to this husband, to this house, to whatever. If there's anything like that, right now is the time to dump it, give it up, lay it aside, run from it. Give it to God. You'll never regret it. Not my will, the Lord Jesus prayed, but thine be done. That's what it means to love the Father. And if you cannot say that with a whole heart this morning, there's a strong question as to whether you've ever been converted. You need to do business with God. Not Monday, not Tuesday, not next time you hear preaching. Don't say with Felix, I'd like to hear you at a more convenient season. Right now, you must do business with God and get yourself right with God. To be saved means to be made more and more like Jesus Christ. Do you desire that? If you desire that, then welcome to Christ. He will grant you that. Do you desire anything but that? Then stop deceiving yourselves. You are not in the faith. Repent or perish. You've heard the gospel this morning. You've had an ex a supreme example in your Savior set before your eyes as to what you ought to be aspiring to be and to do. 
and you've heard a solemn warning from God's word about what will happen to you if you do not do it. May God give you grace to heed these things and not lose them before you get home. May God give grace in this place unto salvation in the lives of many of our young ones and some of you that keep thinking you're going to get by with all that that you're doing. You're not going to make it. May God give you grace. Let us pray. Our Father, we have seen clearly this morning what is the issue. And we have made been made just a little bit to enter into something that our Savior is and sees and feels. And we long to be like him so that with him we may look into your face and say, Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father, I am content with all that you've done and given. I am confident in all that you will do and will give. And I am committed to all that you will command. By your grace, here I am. I do adore you and love you. Lord, make us able from the heart to say it. And where that is in our heart, increase it, improve it, grow it, develop it, prosper it, so that the day may soon arrive when we will stand in glory with Christ, conformed perfectly to his moral image. Forgive us for every expression of nonconformity to Christ and make the changes necessary in us before it's too late. Hear our prayer and make us like him who said to you, I always do the things which pleases my Father. Who said to you, O Father, glorify me so that you may be glorified. Make us like your Son. O God, hear our prayer. And sanctify these words to our lasting hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.